Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Heisen. Hey, Greg. Greetings from Long Island, Jeff. On today's show, do you remember Sergio Ferrer? Greg does. It's almost Mother's Day. The Mets are about to play the Nationals, which means I'm all nervous. But first, the Mets finished April in first. How happy are we about that? This is a fun team to watch. We have a manager that exudes competence and experience, which is a nice change. We have an owner who is a great and careful caretaker of the franchise, which is a nice change. But to quote Nickelback, because why not? Are we having fun yet? Can Mets fans truly relax and enjoy the season? Or are we so wrapped up with the LOL Mets theme? Is this so ingrained into our blue and orange heart that we can't just get past that and thrill to a good team? Let me ask you something, Jeff. At 7:10 tonight, do you enter the game thinking, Mets are good. The Mets are really good. This is a fun season. I'm pretty relaxed. I have no problem with what's going to transpire over the next several hours. Or are you going to be nervous anyway? No matter how many games the Mets might be in first place, no matter how well many of the individual players are doing, no matter that a loss is not going to necessarily impede their playoff chances. What I'm saying is, I think the nervousness is intrinsic to being a fan, whether it's a Mets fan or a fan of anything else that has an outcome. In the larger sense, can we shake off some of the baggage that we've been carrying around for approximately the last 35 years because we haven't won in 36 years? I think we got to do some winning and proof in the pudding, that sort of cliche. And that said, relax a little, enjoy a little, have a little faith is what I'm saying. Have a little confidence is what I'm saying. I don't really love telling people exactly how to root. I mean, I do, but I don't really think I should. And I would advise having some confidence, being relatively certain that terrible things aren't going to happen every single night. Not every single night, but I think that Mets fans have something built into them where they expect another shoe to drop. I think we've talked ourselves into that sort of outlook on the world. Oh dear, something is always going to happen. And because things have happened, and I couldn't tell you if things have happened to the Mets at a greater rate than they've happened to other teams, or we're just so obsessed with our neck of the woods, as Al Roker would say, that, oh my God, we're just preparing for the worst again. In 1986, if you can think back that far, we were really confident by the middle of summer, later in the season. We never really lost our nervousness and our sense that something terrible could happen because, you know, we didn't come through in 1985. We didn't come through in 1984 and everything before that for for about a decade was just misery. I agree in, in theory. We should not assume the worst. We should not set ourselves up to be a laughingstock for others, let alone ourselves, the Mets should keep winning. And the rest, I think, will take care of itself. Let's hope so. It doesn't help that we do this to ourselves. There's a book that you and I read and you and I both liked by Devin Gordon called So Many Ways to Lose, which I started to hate read and I ended up enjoying it. But it looked at Mets history from a LOL Mets perspective. Another prominent podcast 
even had a segment on Monday, and they said, well, because Mets. I'm tired of that. Let's have a great season and remove this doubt from our head as much as possible. Devin Gordon's book is a really good book, and it came from a good place in the Mets fan heart. I appreciated that. Only a Mets fan could tell what it's like to have all the things that happened to the Mets and then tell it well and tell it without rancor. And I appreciated that. I wish more Mets fans had the precedence that you and I have, that we have 1969 in our living memory, that we have 1986 in our living memory, would ask the Mets under Steve Cohn and under Buck Showalter and all the people who we uh, profess love for, keep winning to not give us a reason to feel that shoes and socks and hosiery and everything else is going to drop. Let's let's enjoy where we are coming out of April. Let's beat the teams that we are playing. And I have the feeling the rest will sort of take care of itself. Well, so far, so good. I mentioned before the competence and excellence so far of Buck Showalter. There was a good article on him in Monday's The Athletic, right? Yeah, Andy McCullough, who has covered the Mets in the past and is filling in for Tim Britton on the uh, the Mets beat, apparently, while Tim is off on paternity leave. You can have a baby anytime, but the Mets just threw a no-hitter. Yeah, I mean, come on. There's two no-hitters in the world with the Mets name on them. There might be more Tim Britton children down the road. Andy McCullough, a good story for The Athletic, I think is what we're trying to say here about Buck Showalter, his attention to detail and the fact that he couldn't see like a little sliver of the field from the dugout. So instead of just craning his neck for the next five months after discovering in April that it was not working for him, he talked to people and he had the dugout refigured in such a way that now he can see everything he needs to see. Because if there's ever a manager who needs to see everything, who expects to see everything, who does see everything, and who doesn't sit back and say, well, that's something I can't do anything about, it's Buck Showalter. And it's a good reminder beyond simply a very good one lost record coming out of April that this team is in the right hands. I highly recommend that article. I mentioned other podcasts, but we're the only podcast that was mentioned indirectly on Sunday Night Baseball, right, Greg? David Cohn, you may recall, as a former Met, two different terms, uh, especially uh, the late 80s, early 90s, and then a farewell in 2003. And in between, he pitched for some other team. I don't remember what it was. Uh, he was doing the game on ESPN, and they were dredging up a topic that has something to do with New York and where popularity of baseball teams ranks and all of that sort of thing. And a little inelegantly, because David Cohn used the phrase come out of the woodwork, as in, well, when the Mets are doing well, their fans come out of the woodwork. Although I, I'm going to give Cohn the benefit of the doubt. I think he's not using that phrase the way we tend to take it. I think he meant that, yeah, Mets fans have something to be proud about. And then he added, when the Mets are doing well, got to remember, it's an old National League town. That is evidence that not only, yes, New York is a National League town, which pleases us. It's a phrase that's been in the vernacular for 60 plus years. It's as we explored in a previous episode, it's why we exist. It's why the Mets exist. Never mind our podcast that New York was in love with National League Baseball. Its heart ached without National League Baseball after the Giants and Dodgers left. And when everything is going right, you can feel it. It's a National League town and everything has been going right coming into May. Thanks for the plug, Tony. Well, we're going to return to our series on the Mets bench, but we will do that after this word. Hey, Greg, I didn't know you started playing fantasy baseball. Jeff, what are you talking about? This roster of players you left in the studio. 
Dom Smith, Noah Syndergaard, Todd Frazier, Lenny Dykstra. What kind of league is this? You do know that Frazier and Dykstra are retired. Jeff, that's not a fantasy roster. Those are some of the New York Mets past and present who make appearances throughout the Mike Stoneman thrillers, Kevin G. Chapman's gripping series of crime dramas written in the best tradition of the Harry Bosch novels. Kevin is a Mets fan who writes about NYPD detective Mike Stoneman, so he made Mike a Mets fan too. That's why Kevin's books are so rewarding for Mets fans like us. Detective Stoneman has a knack for running into Dom, into Thor, even into Nails. Uh-oh, is Lenny Dykstra in trouble with the law again? I'm not giving anything away, but Kevin practically is. With the ebook of Righteous Assassin, a steal at Amazon for just 99 cents through May 30th. And the audiobook versions of Righteous Assassin and Lethal Voyage, winner of the 2021 Kindle Book Award, each available for only $3.99 through June 30th via Chirp and Apple Books. So does that mean you're not playing fantasy this season? It means Mets fans can explore the Mike Stoneman Thriller series by Kevin G. Chapman on Amazon or at www.kevingchapman.com. Each title is available in ebook, paperback, hardcover, and audiobook formats. Solve the case of your missing Mike Stoneman Thriller today. And we're back on National League Town. Last week, we started a series called Deep Bench, where Greg's going to talk about the best Mets utility players from each decade. Last week, we started with the 60s. Today, it's the 70s. And again, we're going through all seven decades. Greg will tell us the utility player of the decade and mention a few other players. Well, first, I want to say, have a nice day, because that's what we used to say in the 70s. And a player who had many nice days as a Met without ever being what you'd call a regular was indeed Teddy Martinez. And when I think of the 1970s, when I think of the Mets' deep bench, And when I think of utility players of any era, I think of Teddy Martinez, who, if you were a Mets fan, especially if you were a Mets fan, really coming of age with the team in the first half of the 70s, when you say the phrase utility man, you think Teddy Martinez. A few things about him stand out. First off, although we're used to the idea that we're fortunate enough to get players from not only all 50 states, but also all of Latin America, you didn't see too many Dominican players come out of the Mets farm system before Teddy Martinez. In fact, he was essentially the first Dominican player developed by the Mets, paving the way for many infielders, pitchers, outfielders who would come along later. So I think that is something to credit him for. I want to read a very brief passage from one of my all-time favorite baseball books, Screwball, the autobiography of Tug McGraw. Tug was talking about a really bad weekend he was having pitching in San Francisco in 1970. When Gil Hodges called me into the game, there were men on second and third, and it was a real mess. So I started out by motioning to the shortstop, who was Teddy Martinez that day. He was a rookie from the Dominican Republic who didn't speak much English, and he was pretty tense anyway. I wanted to put on a pickoff play, you know, give Teddy a sign and try to pick the guy off second but he said something that sounded like no comprendo. Then he went back to his position, but before I could pitch, Hodges came out from the dugout, wanted to know what I'd been talking to Martinez about. I told him I was trying to put on a pickoff, and boy, Gil really flipped his lid. It's a trick play, I said. Trick play my foot, he said with real quiet heat. You've got a rookie shortstop who doesn't speak English. You're trying to set up a play we didn't practice. It's a close game, and you're not even worried about getting the hitter out yet. How, he demanded, are you going to get this hitter out? Then, without waiting for me to answer, he said that if we didn't win this game, it would be my ass. 
Teddy Martinez shows up in the major leagues. That's his second appearance. He's thrown into somebody else's drama, somebody else's cauldron, but he, he comes out of it. He gets some time in the majors in 70 and 71. He becomes really important in 1972 because what happens entering 1972? The Mets make a huge trade. We always talk about Rusty Staub. Well, who did we give up to get Rusty Staub? Three players, and one of them was Tim Foley, who was sort of the heir apparent in the middle infield in the early 70s. And the Mets were willing to part with him because they knew that they could count on Teddy Martinez to take what had been his role backing up Ken Boswell, backing up Buddy Harrelson, backing up at third base, backing up in the outfield. And that's exactly what he wound up doing. He filled in during what felt like an era of endless injuries. Tell me if that sounds familiar, but that was Teddy Martinez coming to the Mets' rescue time and again, 1972, 73, 74. Yes, he had that versatility. He had speed when the Mets didn't have very much speed. It's a cherry-picked statistic, I grant you. But who had the most triples on the Mets across three years, 72, 73, and 74? Teddy Martinez, for a guy who was never a regular. He was second in steals during that period as well. Again, the Mets didn't run a lot, but he was tied for second behind Buddy Harrelson. He pinch ran more than all but seven other Mets in the history. Got into game after game despite, again, I keep saying it, never being a regular. One of only seven players to average 100 games a year from 72 to 74. And yes, you've got to believe he was part of the team that won the 1973 pennant. He played in the 1973 World Series, and Oakland must have liked what they saw because they picked him up after the Mets had traded him to St. Louis for their 1975 stretch run, which turned out to be their last division title. And then he wound up on the Dodgers on a couple of teams that went to the World Series. He impressed a lot of people, but stays with me beyond all the things I just said. He was a constant. He was always here. One of those guys you don't have too many of in modern baseball who knows his role, fills his role, I guess could have complained but didn't, got himself comfortable with, with the United States, would go on Kiner's Corner, would try his best to communicate. You know, interpreters were not around in those days. So I think Teddy Martinez showed a lot of courage. He showed a lot of talent. And, you know, the numbers are okay, but you need guys like that. I think that's what we've been trying to say with the deep bench series as we look back on 60 years of Mets baseball. You need a deep bench. You need utility men. And in the 1970s, we needed Teddy Martinez. Do you think he's been forgotten in Mets history? It's easy to overlook somebody who's not in the Mets Hall of Fame, shall we say, who isn't going to be in the Mets Hall of Fame, whose oversized baseball card doesn't decorate the concourses at City Field. One of those guys who you had to be there to remember him, but I think that's a lot of players. But that's what this series is about. We, we hope to bring to light a few of these guys who don't get talked about that often, but we're part of the fabric of Mets baseball, and I'm really happy we could do that for Teddy Martinez. When Teddy Martinez was traded, I accepted that as the cost of doing business. It was a very active offseason. One of those who was traded, in fact, was Tug McGraw, who I guess eventually learned to communicate with Teddy Martinez and, and vice versa. The Teddy Martinez replacements, shall we say, never really worked out, even as the Mets tried to find their way above 500, as they did for a couple of years after Teddy left. Jack Heideman was the guy they got directly from Martinez. He didn't really work out. They sort of replaced Jack Heideman with Leo Foster. He didn't really work out. They each hit one home run as a Met, which is a, a club unto itself. I should probably mention the name Mike Phillips, who would probably be in that realm, except 
Mike Phillips took his utility and put it to immediate use because Buddy Harrelson in that era of injuries went down for most of 1975. And Mike Phillips, much as Dave Kingman had come over from San Francisco in 75, came over, filled in, had a really good, solid year as a regular, even got like serious write-in votes for the All-Star team didn't go to the All-Star game in 75, and he hung around here for a cycle in 76 as a semi-regular part-timer utility type. We would go to the end of the decade kind of flailing about, I think, for that ultimate Teddy Martinez replacement. I want to tip a cap real briefly to two names who don't necessarily fit in this realm, but it, it seems impossible to talk about a deep bench without mentioning Bruce Beauclair. Bruce Beauclair was not a middle infielder, and I, I think we tend to think of middle infielders, at least I have, <laughs> In contemplating the series, Bruce Beauclair played outfield. He played a little first base. It was a pinch hitter deluxe. And there is something about Bruce Beauclair that everybody who was approximately, oh, let's say early adolescence, late childhood, circa 1976, remembers Bruce Beauclair. Uh, he's a touchstone of that era, and he played for those teams of the late 70s, getting a little less productive every year. I also want to mention Joel Youngblood, who's too good to be considered, quote, only a bench player. Joel Youngblood would ultimately peak in 1981 as a starting outfielder and an all-star. But there was a period there where the Mets didn't quite know what to do with him because he could play so many different positions, which I think bugged him because he considered himself a really good outfielder, which he was, and they kept trying to stick him at second and then third base. There's a lot more there, but Joel Youngblood certainly, he may not have been willing, but he would do what was asked. But I want to end our discussion of a deep bench in the 1970s with a guy who I have been abnormally obsessed with for the past 40 plus years, and that would be Sergio Ferrer. Sergio Ferrer had been something of a journeyman. He came to the Mets in 1978. I don't think he made that much of an impression on me in 78. 1979, he made an impression on me for a number of reasons. Sergio Ferrer came to bat all of seven times that year while being on the roster for a good long time. Never made it on base via a base hit. 0 for 7. Why does that stick out with me so much? In fact, there are guys who I believe have gone longer. I think Eric Young Jr., when he came back as a pinch runner deluxe in 2015, had a similar longer run of hitless at-bats. There was a 10-run inning in 1979. It set the record that wouldn't be tied until that magical 10-run inning in 2000 where Mike Piazza hit the home run against the Braves. This was 10 runs against the Reds. It was 1979, so you weren't expecting 10 runs in a week. And everything is going right. Doug Flynn has an inside-the-park home run. It's a beautiful night in Cincinnati. And then Sergio Ferrer comes up and he hits one deep in the hole. I want to say the third base to Ray Knight, a name you'll want to remember. And Steve Albert, speaking of people who I don't think get mentioned very often in a Met uh, context, Steve Albert broadcasting the game that night, that inning on Channel 9 says, even little Sergio is going to get a hit. And then in that instant, I'm thinking the skies are opening and the sun is breaking through and there's nothing we can do wrong in 1979 as, as the Mets and as Mets fans. And then Ray Knight makes a great play, throws Sergio out. And that's as close as he came to a base hit. And just, just to check to see if my mind was playing tricks on me, Sergio Ferrer's OPS in 1979 was negative 32. Not 32, negative 32. So that'll happen. 
happened. But you know what? Joe Torre found a reason to use Sergio Ferrer beyond just a broad lack of talent, perhaps on the 1979 Mets. Uh, between 78 and 79, he was inserted into games 30 times as a pinch runner. That's ninth most in Mets history. Now, that isn't the sign of a utility player. I don't know what is. And I will leave you with one final Sergio Ferrer fact. I'm at a game in 1979, which makes me very unusual because the Mets did not draw much. Richie Hebner had done something well, which also makes it rare because we pretty much had it with Richie Hebner by the second half of the season when this took place. And he'd had to run the bases hard. He's sitting in the dugout. He's catching his breath. Sergio Ferrer, such a utility player, he goes to the trouble taking a towel and waving it playfully at Richie Hebner to say, here, I'll cool you down. And I could see from the third base side into the dugout, which is on the first base side at Shea Stadium, Richie Hebner break out into a grin. You never saw Richie Hebner grin the entire time he was a New York Met. And Sergio Ferrer brought that happiness out of him, if only for a nanosecond. So he was no Teddy Martinez, but he was somebody who helped fill out a roster and fill out a deep bench. So that that's uh, utility men in the 1970s for the New York Mets. Your comment about Joel Youngblood always brings to mind the fact that in 1982, he did something that will never be surpassed. Might be tied, but it'll never be surpassed. Getting two hits for two teams in one day in two different cities. He was a Met in the afternoon at Wrigley Field, singled off of Ferguson Jenkins. Then he was traded during the game to the Expos who were in Philadelphia. He made it to the game in Philadelphia, put on an Expo uniform, and singled as an Expo off of Steve Carlton. So two hits for two teams in one day in two different cities and both off of future Hall of Famers. A lot of players can play more than one position in one day. How many players play for two different teams in one day and do all the things that you described? We're going to do the 80s next week as we continue our deep bench series. Well, next week, the Mets will be in Washington. I live in a D.C. suburb of Maryland. So when the Mets are in Washington, I get to see the Mets in person. And this always winds me up. I've had some bad experiences there. I've seen some bad stuff. But first of all, you go to the games in Washington, and there's no easy way to get there. Parking is terrible. It's overpriced. And Metro, as Howie and Wayne made fun of the last time the Mets were in Washington, stops at midnight. And the fact that the trains stop at a certain hour is something foreign to New Yorkers. Then you go to Nationals Park, and Nationals Park is a bloated double-A stadium. That's not necessarily the Nationals' fault, although the learners who are trying to sell the team at the moment, the learners haven't done anything to make it better. Nationals Park was built by the District of Columbia to show Major League Baseball that they would have a stadium in place if the city was granted a team. You walk into Nationals Park, and it's actually nice for a few moments because the concourse is open. Picture going into City Field, but you're not inside, you're outside. There are statues there. None of the statues are great, but they're of great players in Washington baseball history. From there, not so great. It's not a great ballpark. The scoreboard's nice, but that's about it. The PA announcer is a huckster. Their fans are ignorant. The sight lines are poor. Why do I go? Because I want to see the Mets in person. I always sit on the third base side, which is the Mets side, and I'm sitting with loyal Mets fans. But again, I've seen some bad stuff. 
and we're talking about September 3rd, 2019. And that is the Kurt Suzuki game. Remember that, folks? Because that's the one that Gary Cohn mentions all the time. Nationals 11, Mets 10, Nationals score seven runs in the bottom of the ninth. Most of the national fans were long gone. I went to that game with my friend Kirby, and it seemed like he knew something because when the ninth inning started, he said he was leaving. I said, why are you leaving? Let's stick around to watch the Mets celebrate. And he said, I don't want to see Diaz blow the lead. And that's what happened. I was sitting by myself watching drip, drip, drip. And right before Suzuki hit the home run, the Masson, the Nationals TV outlet, captured me sitting by myself, stewing. And I remember what I was thinking at the time. And that was, he's going to hit a home run. And the next pitch, he did. And they replay that game all the time on Masson. It's a Nationals classic. And I still get calls from friends about that game. Of course, there are some good memories, specifically one game, September 9th, 2015. Mets down by a run, eighth inning, Kelly Johnson homers, Curtis Granderson singles, Cespedes homers. The Mets win, and they went are on their way to a championship. And I was at that game. But when you hear the Mets fans start chanting, let's go Mets, and Nationals fans start booing, I just want to tell you, Gary was wrong. And Gary's not wrong very much. But when the Mets were in Arizona, he equated Phillies booing with Washington booing. Phillies fans know how to boo. Washington fans boo when Mets fans cheer, let's go Mets, out of a sense of obligation. And it's delayed because they're not watching the game. And it takes them a few seconds to absorb the fact that the Mets fans are chanting, let's go Mets. And when they do, it brings to mind something a Mets fan said during game two of the season. Not to me, but he said out loud. And Nationals fans started to boo the Let's Go Mets chant. He's wearing blue and orange, and he said this in a heavy New York accent, which I can't do justice to. If you don't like it, buy more seats. We're filling your arena for you. So when the Mets are in Washington, look for me on the third base side. I guess I'm wondering, Jeff, have the fans gotten any more on point? I, I know you like to dismiss them, and I certainly understand why, but they've had a world championship. They've had multiple trips to the postseason, and they've had Max Scherzer. Is the sophistication level risen at all? No, not, not a bit. They are still unaware, unknowledgeable. And if the Nationals move back to Montreal, it would take them three months to realize it. Whether in French or whether in French-Canadian or whether in English, uh, Les Gomes, which I don't think is French for Let's Go Mets, but uh, I wish you and the third base side well in your chanting, and may you uh, bring us to victory. Before we go, it's almost Mother's Day, and you wanted to discuss Mother's Day. Mother's Day is hard to ignore, which I always find a little uncomfortable since my mother died in 1990, and I not really celebrated a Mother's Day since then, but I understand it's important just to other people. We will take Ralph Kinder's quote and retrofit it, wish a, a happy birthday to all the mothers out there this coming Sunday. My mother was... A Mets fan. Your mother, I'm sure, didn't root against the Mets by any means. So, uh, you know, that they would have each had stories to tell on us, I suppose, so with regard for Sandy Prince and for Arlene Heisen. I want to bring up something that a mother who was a big Mets fan wrote 
about 30 years ago, actually. Uh, the name will probably be familiar to a lot of our listeners. Nora Ephron, great writer, great director, and a great Mets fan, uh, in case you didn't know that. Uh, I was directed to pick a book off my shelf recently by a friend who reminded me that there's a great essay in there, this book called birth of a fan. It's one really top-notch writer after another uh, talking about what made them a fan. And these were people at the top of their game in the early 1990s who had been around. And the afterword was written by Nora Ephron. And it's so on target for who we are and what we do. I wanted to share it with our listeners. It's brief, if you'll indulge me. How I became a fan is this. I have a son named Max, who in 1987 became a baseball fan. It was all fairly shocking. I had been warned for some time by friends that there comes a time in every mother's life, every mother of son's life, when you run out of things to talk about, but it never crossed my mind it would happen so abruptly. I lost my child to baseball, completely. I lost him not just to baseball, but to its equipment. Every penny he had was spent on baseball cards. He began to accumulate mitts. He spent his life in uniform. An enormous amount of effort went into things like finding the Mets Road uniforms, as opposed to the home one, and calling the Rawlings Company, which I now know is located in Minnesota, owing to its frequent appearance on my phone bill. Finally, I did the only thing possible. I followed him into baseball. I became a Mets fan. I started out ignorant and bored, as you tend to be at the beginning of things like baseball, and within weeks I became expert and passionate. I had theories about everything. Theories about the management and the third base problem. I felt more violent antagonism toward Kevin McReynolds than I felt about almost anything. I had elaborate fantasies about what I would do if I were the manager, and even more elaborate fantasies about what I would do about the food at Shea Stadium, which seemed to me then and now in desperate need of my attention. I even had fantasies about calling the telephone call-in shows and having long conversations with people like Mike Francesa about how much we all missed Ray Knight. I fell in love. That is the truth. I would emerge from the subway at Shea and my heart would leap. Someone would hit a ball over the fence and I would jump for joy. Max and I spent hours together with the sports pages. We worshipped Tim McCarver together. We honed our math by adding the Saturday night batting statistics into the Sunday morning ones that don't include Saturday's game. We practiced the serial monogamy of the fan. He went from loving Mookie Wilson to loving Mackie Sasser. I went from David Cohn to Frank Viola. And then one day, as suddenly as it had begun, Max lost interest in baseball and became, I am not kidding, a wrestling fan. The wall over his bed was suddenly filled with pictures of oiled bodies. He sent away for a costume that made him look like Tarzan. He watched things on television that made fantastic amounts of noise. He was gone, and the truth is that I probably drove him there. The truth is that he went to a place where he knew that no mother would ever go. He was safe from my fanaticism. And here I am, thanks to Max, I am a fan. I read the sports pages alone, and I watch the games alone, and I have even been known to go to Shea alone. On Mother's Day, also known as Maybelline Makeup Bag Day, I make my children go to the game with me, but mostly it's just me and my husband. I love baseball, and it makes my heart leap. It makes me jump for joy. I have a theory about it. It came to me a couple of years ago. I was having lunch with a friend who was having a rough time in her marriage. She was complaining in a not particularly veiled way about how much fun she had the month before when her husband was away on business. She was saying that she had such a wonderful time meeting new people and going to new places and feeling for just a moment that her life wasn't frozen. I sat there thinking, is she having an affair with someone? Am I supposed to say anything in response to this or just let the damn thing lie? 
Finally, I said, well, I know what you mean. I pretty much know what my life is, too. I'm never going to fall in love again because I'm in love with the person I'm going to be with for the rest of my life. I'm not going to have any more children. My life is pretty much frozen, too. And that's why I said brightly, I've gotten so involved in baseball. My friend looked at me as if I had just uttered the most preposterously irrelevant remark of our friendship, which I had. But the point is that I know that baseball has come along for one reason, Max, and become a crucial part of my life for quite another, to provide a kind of drama that a hopelessly settled life like mine lacks. That was Nora Ephron, circa 1993, talking about why she loved the Mets, why she loved baseball, and how it brought her closer to her son, how her son brought her baseball, and how somehow baseball transcended all that. Around that time, a little earlier, because my mother was gone by the early 90s, that's what baseball was for me in a lot of ways. My mother didn't bring me to baseball, but she often bought me baseball cards. She threatened once in a while to throw out my baseball cards if I didn't clean my room because my room was the inspiration for Neil Simon and later Gary Marshall in creating Oscar Madison's room in The Odd Couple. And one time she kind of followed through, put a bunch of things in a hefty bag, and then waited for me to go downstairs when she wasn't looking and fish them out, which I didn't quite have the brains to do. So I lost a few cards. But for the most part, she enhanced my love of baseball and made, made it all the more intriguing as we went along. So she's been gone a while, but I, I will think of her on Mother's Day, as I'm sure, Jeff, you'll think of your mother. So once again, in memory of uh, Sandra Prince and memory of Arlene Heisen, and for all the mothers who listen to us, for all the mothers of our listeners, and for all those who just want to love baseball like they love family. Uh, happy Mother's Day. That was beautiful, Greg. Thank you for sharing it with us. And to Nora Ephron, rest in peace. I'll have what you're having. And that'll do it for another episode of Nationally Town. We thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook. You can write to us, nationalleaguetown at gmail.com. Until next week, I'm Jeff Heisen. I'm Greg Prince. And as always, let's go Mets. Copyright 2022, music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Bandcamp.